Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, Charles Cobb, author of the book On the Road to Freedom, A Guided Tour of the Civil Rights Trail. What we did in the 1960s is not going to answer every question that confronts somebody living in the 21st century, but there might be some things (laughs) that are useful. Remembering when tomatoes were a popular Florida crop. And that's why the farmer's market south of Fort Pierce was founded and very active. A number of tomato packing houses down there were very active. And we'll look at storytelling traditions in North Florida. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. Charles Cobb is a founding member of the National Association of Black Journalists and author of the book On the Road to Freedom, a guided tour of the Civil Rights Trail. The book is part memoir, detailing Cobb's own work in the Southern Freedom Movement, part travel book, taking the reader to 400 historic sites, and part history, where Cobb attempts to place the Civil Rights era between World War II and the assassination of Martin Luther King into a new context. Charles Cobb's own participation as a civil rights activist began in February of 1960 with the sit-in movement, which led to the creation of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee. Some of us, and I was one of them, dropped out of school to work full-time, 24-7, around the South, uh, mainly around voter registration. And we were part of a very old tradition in black America of community organizing. And what you would see if, 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 you, if you went into the history would be a convergence of young people like myself. I was 19 years old when I showed up in Mississippi. Convergence of young people with older people, usually in their 40s, 50s, and 60s, who had been involved around the idea of organizing for civil rights uh, throughout uh, the South. I tell in the book my own particular story. Uh, 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 because I was involved in the sit-in movement on the campus of Howard University, and remember Washington, D.C. was completely surrounded by segregated states, Maryland and Virginia, a core, the Congress of Racial Equality, invited me to a I forget the title, a youth leadership civil rights training workshop in Houston, Texas. So I decided, as only a 19-year-old probably can, to take advantage of the invitation to see the entire South. And I bought a bus ticket from Washington, D.C., through Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, Alabama, Mississippi. I got off the bus in Mississippi because 
students were sitting in in Mississippi and Jackson. And Mississippi, to our way of thinking, was the worst place on earth for a black person. So I couldn't quite get a fix on the idea of black students sitting in it, so I wanted to meet some of them. And when I told one of the students whom I met that I was on this bus trip headed towards Texas, Lawrence Guyot, he great big guy, and he looked at me with total disdain, and he said, I remember his words, he said, Houston, Texas for a civil rights workshop, what's the point of that when you're standing right here in Mississippi? And it was a, clearly a challenge. And Giat, as it turned out, who would later become the head of the Mississippi Freedom Democratic Party in Mississippi, uh, was on the way up to the Mississippi Delta to join another fellow on a voter. And before I even got back on the bus, a day or so later, the Ku Klux Klan got after him and Sam and some other people. And they called down, and then the phone went dead. Well, I simply couldn't get on a bus and go to Texas without knowing what had happened to him. So I jumped in the car that was going up to investigate and wound up staying up there for almost five years. <laughs> Cities familiar to civil rights history, such as Birmingham, Selma, and Atlanta, are featured in On the Road to Freedom, but Cobb also takes his readers to less well-known towns that played an important role in the movement. It constantly pulls the writer's dilemma. On one hand, you know, yes, Birmingham is well-known, Selma is well-known, Montgomery is well-known, etc. Uh, there are places that are well-known. And as a practical matter, also, there are places you want to send people to if you're writing a travel book because there are museums. You know, you want to send them to the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham. But as somebody like me who was involved in the movement, you also know that there are lots of places that were important to the movement that aren't well-known. You know, uh, most of southwest Georgia, you know, parts of Alabama, Lowndes County, Alabama, uh, most of the Mississippi Delta. And you want to send people there because that really gets more to what I think the Southern Freedom Movement was, a movement of community organizing in really the backcountry of the South, less a movement of mass protests in public spaces led by charismatic leaders. Well, that was an important dimension. If you would ask me, you know, to describe the movement, I would describe it in terms of community organizing. The writer's dilemma, if you're writing a travel book, of course, is, well, but if you go to these places, what's there? <laughs> you know, you tromp out in the middle of the field. I could take you someplace in Holmes County, Mississippi, and I say, right here was where the Freedom School was. You don't understand, but it's nothing. And I did this with my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> You're standing in a bunch of weeds, you know. And so I was trying to, you know, on one hand, trying to figure out. I did it successfully in some places, and looking at the book now, maybe not as successfully as it could have been in other. But I really did want to introduce readers to, to places that they wouldn't ordinarily think of going to, like Cambridge, uh, Maryland, or for that matter, um, I suspect that the average tourists coming to St. Augustine, Florida, wouldn't think of that town in terms of civil rights, yet it has a well-marked civil rights trail. In his book, On the Road to Freedom, Cobb says in his epilogue that Florida may be the state that is most ignored in discussion and assessment of the Southern Civil Rights Movement, although significant events unfolded in the Sunshine State. Some of the historic sites that Cobb visits in the book include the Jackie Robinson Ballpark and Monument in Daytona, 
the Harry T. and Harriet V. Moore Cultural Complex in Mims, the Axe Handle Saturday Memorial in Jacksonville, and the Kingsley Plantation on Fort George Island. Cobb places most of his emphasis on St. Augustine. The protests and civil rights demonstrations in St. Augustine tipped the balance that summer in the sense of passage of the 1964 Civil Rights Act and the, the Public Accommodations Act. And as I say, the, the, the kind of violence that the protesters met with, uh, were, you know, were seen all over the world. And, and it had to be embarrassing to, to the state of Florida. So I talk about it. I also talk, because every chapter in the book also provide some historical context outside of the time frame. Of the, you know, the, the time frame I'm talking about when I discuss the civil rights movement is very specific. Uh, it starts with a 1939 concert at the Lincoln Memorial by Marian Anderson, and it ends with the assassination of Martin Luther King in 1968. It's this time frame that I call the modern era of the civil rights movement. Other people could make other arguments for but this is what I think of it as. Now, but every chapter, while most of the chapter is devoted to events within that time frame, every chapter also offers a larger context. There's a discussion, there's a continuing discussion of slavery, uh, for example, because slavery, while common to the South, in some ways manifests itself differently from state to state. The kind of slavery you're looking at in South Carolina is not exactly the same as the kind of slavery you're looking at in Tennessee and so forth. But it, with Florida, the interesting, there were lots of ways to go in, a, in that kind of discussion in Florida, but what I chose uh, in discussing Florida and, and slavery was the unique fact that perhaps the largest slave owner in northern Florida was an African woman from Senegal. I found that extremely interesting. Not only that, but her descendants, uh, uh, the beach lady who, who, who walked up and down American Beach to protect it, it was the seventh generation. And her sister, Janetta, uh, became the president of Spelman College and Bennett College. And so, so, you know, I make the point in the book about Florida that we think of Florida in terms of beaches and alligators and <laughs> maybe Miami. <laughs> but uh, there's, a, there's a whole history here. And, and, and while I by no means is this a scholar's history, it's a reporter's narrative <laughs> about things he finds interesting with respect to the civil rights movement. And I found... St. Augustine, as I say, to be the most interesting, although I make the point that probably the earliest protests uh, in Florida took place in Miami, led by CORE. And, uh, and then you have the bus boycott in, in Tallahassee, which is extremely important, and earlier than the Montgomery, Alabama uh, bus boycott. Um, so there, you know, it, as I say, it's what a reporter found interesting. As a reporter, Charles Cobb has worked around the world for NPR, PBS, National Geographic, and AllAfrica.com. Cobb says that current generations must remember and learn from America's civil rights movement. Drawing on my experience as a reporter and writer essentially in foreign affairs that I have seen all over the world how easily civil rights and civil liberties can just be obliterated. It doesn't take a lot. 
a demagogue here in the right circumstances, you know, a steep enough economic decline over here. So you always, it seems to me, have to be vigilant around uh, questions of civil rights and civil liberties. And part of being vigilant, it seems to me, is to look back at some of the struggles that have established civil rights and civil liberties. It just seems perfectly logical to me. And the second part, point I would make in response um, to your question is the, this country has had right from its founding a continuing argument over who gets to be a full citizen. And that's not resolved. <laughs> and the question of citizenship is a civil rights issue again. Who gets to be of a gays? Do they have full rights? Women? Native Americans, illegal immigrants, you know, there's a huge, I mean, this argument started with the founding of the country, really around black people and Native Americans, and while parts of it have resolved, in 1965, the country finally decided, and near 300 years after its founding, that blacks could vote. <laughs> so this argument is not finished, and you have to, again, I think it's worthwhile seeing what's useful in past struggle. I mean, the, what we did in the 1960s is not going to answer every question that confronts somebody living in the 21st century. But there might be some things <laughs> that are useful. Charles Cobb is author of the book On the Road to Freedom, a guided tour of the Civil Rights Trail. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Please visit our website at myfloridahistory.org where you can order great books on Florida history and culture, find out about upcoming events and activities, and become a member of your Florida Historical Society. You can also listen to archived editions of this program at myfloridahistory.org. Things have come to a pretty pass. Our romance is growing flat For you like this and the other While I go for this and that Goodness knows what the end will be Oh, I don't know where I'm at It looks as if we two will 
never be one Something must be done You say either, I say either You say neither, and I say neither Either, either, and either, neither Let's call the whole thing off Yes, you like potato And I like potato You like tomato I like tomato Potato, potato Tomato, tomato Let's call the whole thing off When you think of Florida crops, citrus and strawberries are probably the first to come to mind. Janie Gould reports that tomatoes were once a popular Florida crop as well. Unlike citrus and cattle, tomatoes were never king around here, but tomato growing did used to be a big business. Fort Pierce native Paul Driscoll worked in citrus management and consulting for more than 50 years. He remembers the tomato industry from his boyhood. It was sort of a a gamble because they would plant a fall crop and a spring crop. People who would sometimes plant a fall crop, be successful, use all the money they made from that to go out and plant more acres than what they planted the first time, plant large crops and then it'd fail because of disease or weather or maybe the crops came in late and the market wasn't any good. I can recall a neighbor two doors down that was a millionaire in the fall and in the spring he was broke and didn't know what he was going to do. But the smartest economist I've ever met was a tomato man named Sut Hogan who had never studied economics but knew more about it than most PhDs. Sut would plant the same acreage every time. And so if he made money, instead of planting more acreage, he'd plant the same every time. If that crop didn't make it, he still had some money to plant another crop. So he survived. He did very well, yeah. Didn't they have to rotate the land because of nematodes? What are those things anyway? Well, nematodes are microscopic worms. There's a multitude of them, just like there are insects. I'm not thoroughly familiar with it. Uh, I think that it was that, and I think it was a fungus disease. Once you planted a tomato crop in that field, that fungus disease, which may have been at a low population uh, when you planted, will multiply. And if you planted another crop in there, it would fail because they, there'd be more fungus there to, and more nematodes there to infect the uh, second crop. So they never used the same land twice? No, they didn't then. In recent years, they've done some fumigating. That's another whole story. But tomatoes were a huge crop in this area. A huge crop, and that's why the farmer's market south of Fort Pierce was founded and very active. A number of tomato packing houses down there were very active. There was some good money made. Was it ever as big as citrus? No, it never was. What caused it to die out around here? Well, I think that a lot of competition from Mexico. Some years ago, I did some research on the number of tomato farmers in the state from what it used to be of the numbers that used to exist, there are only about 25% of those growers that still exist in the state of Florida. When Paul Driscoll was a young man and had been discharged from the Army, he spent a few months back in Fort Pierce before going to graduate school. He worked for the old Cherokee tomato cannery in downtown Fort Pierce. His job was to keep track of the productivity of the women who were employed to peel the tomatoes before canning. As each peeler would put a peeled pan on the belt, 
I would punch their card each time. How much do they get paid per pan? I they wonder. were getting 25 cents a pan. I bet some of them were pretty fast peelers. Oh, yeah. It was a real experience and a real education for me. I found out then that you didn't have to be married to get pregnant. <laughs> Seriously? Seriously. One of the peelers who got pregnant, I said something about her husband. What does he do? And she said, oh, I don't have a husband. And the one next to her said to me, you don't have to have a husband to get pregnant. And you said? I'm sure I blushed at that stage of my life. I had just <laughs> returned from two years in the Army as a lieutenant and a company commander of a truck company in Korea. But my education wasn't complete. Until you worked in the Until cannery. I worked in the canning plant. That was veteran citrus man Paul Driscoll. Janie Gould from WQCS prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. Storytelling is one of the oldest means of human expression. Storytelling is also a way of passing on cultural values, community legend, and family history. Today, many people are content to let movies and television tell our stories for us, but there are some who still believe the old tradition of storytelling should be kept alive. Bill Dudley has more. All right, children. I'm going to tell you a tale that my mama told me when I was a little girl. One night, my fox said, Barabbit, how about going to see our gals tonight? And Barabbit said, well, all right, Recorded at the Florida Folk Festival in 1953, storyteller Annie Tomlin with her North Florida versions of some of the American South's best-loved folktales. And these were stories that she would tell at the Florida Folk Festival, but she'd also tell them in front of a little kerosene heater in her house during the winter months when the kids would all be gathered around, her kids and her grandkids, and it was part of that community. Since moving to Florida in 1997, folklorist John Kay has been collecting stories of all kinds from people in what he calls the Suwannee River Valley, an area ranging from the headwaters near Georgia's Okefenokee Swamp all the way to the Gulf of Mexico. I was interested in stories and how stories are, are situated in place and also how they last over generations, how they transfer from one generation to the next and if they do. Now, sir, you tell me that you know this uh, story. It's not a fairy story, you say, but it's a good old story. Yeah. So you go right ahead and tell it. In his work, Kay is able to draw on a distinguished line of Florida collectors that has included Zora Neale Hurston and Stetson Kennedy, heard here interviewing a storyteller in the late 1930s as part of the WPA Federal Writers Project. He had fried potatoes, he had roasted potatoes, and he had stewed potatoes. 
He had a tater custard. He had a sliced potato pie. John Kay says he's uncovered a range of different kinds of stories for different purposes and occasions. It's a wide variety of stories because stories serve functions. Stories that are told by women are often things that are associated with rearing children or things that are told in the kitchen and that sort of thing. So there are stories that are often much more traditional, sometimes folk tales. But then men tend to tell more jokes more stories that are associated with occupations, like Lim Griffiths' stories are associated around the, the fish camps, uh, which is his business. I take lots of people into the Oak Swamp, take many hundreds of them in there, brought a few of them back. <laughs> it's a very safe place to go. We never have had anyone to get drowned down there yet. If one falls overboard, an alligator always swallows them before they have time to drown. Before his death in 1966, Lem Griffiths was probably the most famous teller of tall tales in the Suwannee River Valley. People are afraid of bear, naturally they would be. And any of you folks ever visit the Old Oak Swamp and is afraid of a bear, please carry a walking cane with you. They will not catch you if you carry a walking cane, providing you carry that walking cane fast enough. <laughs> There are these little elements, what we call motifs in folklore, and they become interchangeable. Uh, Zelton Connor, who grew up a generation later and many miles from there, tells the same joke, but uh, the elements are different. If, you, if you're afraid of alligators, if you carry a pine cone, you don't have to worry about them bothering you, provided you carry it fast enough. So you have these motifs, these little elements. The elements can be changed. But there's this underlying structure or form or what we call a tail type. He said, I'm the ghost of your great-great-grandpa. And he didn't kill anything. And you can't have your shadow unless you promise not to go rabbit hunting anymore. Zelton Connor, now in his 80s, is just one North Floridian carrying on the tall tale tradition. He started telling stories because he, he was a shoeshine boy at the local barber shop growing up in Callahan, Florida. And he uh, would listen to these old men tell swap tales. And so he said a lot of my stories came from that. But more often, folklorists find stories passed down within family circles. In our contemporary society, you say storytellers, you get this idea of librarians in floppy hats, you know, telling stories that they've learned out of books. But these stories and jokes and oral traditions in general are things that are rooted in place and are part of family, and they need to be a part of daily life. The families and communities that keep those alive, those stories persist for a longer period of time. A lot of the artistry of storytelling is being lost. The stories are, are contracting a little bit. People don't spend the time sitting around the, the kitchen table telling stories like they, they once did. And so uh, it's kind of like working any muscle or anything. The stories don't get exercised. My rabbit put on his white shirt and his collar and his tie and his black hat. My fox always go just going, playing old country boy with his blue jeans and his plaid shirt, his red pocket handkerchief. One of the things I'm really interested in uh, in this project is to take these stories that are now often in archives or just part of family memories and take them back to people and use them to teach communities about folk life. 
I want to try to teach this kind of beauty of these of these animal tales as alongside folk tales, alongside myths. What I'm hoping is we can put together a public forum, a bu- public presentation where I can present these storytellers and their stories and then get people to understand that kind of storytelling tradition, how uh, all these uh, all these elements kind of fit together. Folklorist John Kay, I'm Bill Dudley. With funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, this report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokemarkle. Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Florida Humanities Council and the National Endowment for the Humanities. It's also made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Brevard County Board of Commissioners through the Brevard Cultural Alliance, Incorporated.